Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Muscle Podcast, episode number 324. The worst thing you write is better than the best thing you didn't write. Anonymous. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Black Box. Black Box is a new platform and community that is all about financial freedom for filmmakers like you. If you join Blackbox, you will be transformed from being a worker to being a maker of your own content. And you'll be making steady passive income from the global market. Blackbox currently allows you to upload your stock footage once, get it to many global agencies, and then allows you to share that passive income stream with your collaborators. Whether you want to submit old footage that's been sitting around in your hard drives or create brand new content, Blackbox is for you. It's really quite revolutionary. With Blackbox, filmmakers can concentrate on making great content while Blackbox takes care of all the business BS. Just visit www.blackbox.global to find out more. And today's show is also sponsored by Indie Film Hustle TV, the world's first streaming service dedicated to filmmakers, screenwriters, and content creators. If you want access to filmmaking documentaries, feature films about filmmaking, interviews with some of the top screenwriters and filmmakers in Hollywood, as well as educational online courses all in one place, IFH TV is for you. And what if I told you you could get all of this for free? Just head over to IndieFilmHustle.tv for your free seven-day trial. Now, today on the show, we have a unique human being by the name of Stephen Follows. Stephen is by far one of the best analytical film data guys ever. He is kind of like Rain Man, but with film data. And he is probably the best research, film research guy I've ever even seen or heard of. A lot of big studios go to him for this information because he just is one of those guys who can break through it all. And the information that he's doing through his website and through his reports is mind-boggling. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what makes a good screenplay. So this man went through 12,000 screenplays and all of their coverage that were covered by professional script coverage people and then analyzed all the data from all of these uh, script readers and put a report together on what makes a good screenplay, what readers, what Hollywood, what, you know, what passes, what doesn't pass, 
what you know gets produced, what doesn't get produced. This by far is one of the most just mind-boggling things I've ever heard of, and he is the man to do it. So without any further ado, please enjoy my insane conversation with Stephen Follows. I'd like to welcome to the show Stephen Follows, man. Thank you so much from your busy, insane schedule, sir, to come on the show and, and share your knowledge bombs with the tribe today. Hey, my pleasure. I'm really delighted to be here, and it's really nice to connect up and, and hopefully you know, help your audience as much as the work you're doing already helps them. Absolutely, man. I mean, for, before we get started, I've, I have to tell everybody in the tribe that you, I am a huge fan of what you do. Uh, Stephen is easily the best f- like film researcher, film data guy on the planet, with, <laughs> without question. The stuff that he does is absolutely insane and we're going to talk about one of those insane projects in this episode without question but uh we were just talking it about helps, it helps that there aren't many of us right yeah, there's, so you don't have I'm, a lot of competition maybe doing well but in a small category yeah <laughs> but the point is the work that you do which is you know obscene amounts of data crunching for the film industry and then you put that kind of information out you don't hide it behind you know, thousand dollar paywall. You give it away, or or give it, or you know, or or you know, pay as you go, or whatever it is. You really are trying to help the community. So uh, I am excited to talk about your latest project, and we're also going to talk about some of your past projects as well. But before we get into it, why? <laughs> like, at well, what point did did you have like data, like charts on your wall when you were a child? How did this? How did you become the the world like the film data guy, and what made you want to get into this side of the business? And I know you have other, you know, you are in other parts of your business. But first of all, how did you get into the business, and then we'll talk yeah. about your film data stuff. Well, I've I've always been into film as a kid. That's been always my thing. That's always the medium and the power of it, and you know everything from your, you know, the tempole, you know, popcorn blockbusters. I love them, and right down to sort of oh, right down right across to kind of really heartfelt indie films that make you think and cry. And you know, it's always been my thing. So film has always been there as a constant. And then uh, I used to write a little bit as a kid, but mostly I was a, wanted to be a producer. And I went to film school, and I was in a class of like hundred people, and and everyone wanted to be a director or a, you know a camera. Person. Person and I just I wanted to produce so I just produced and produced loads and loads of terrible short films and just you know producing was my thing I can organize stuff and I like to bring things to to reality and I also like working with other people so it's I, I never want to go away and just do something by myself I kind of like the idea of a team and, and, and you know what that makes and then set up a production company and, and working away at that writing and, and producing stuff and my business partner Ed is a director and a, and a really good one at that and uh, so we sort of built a company that was a video company and now focuses on storytelling. So we still make videos. We do TV commercials. We, all our stuff is for charities, um, in the third sector. And so that, that kind of, that part of my life is that sort of 15 year journey, um, which was always driven about, you know, wanting to get films made and wanting to move people. And then with the charity thing, wanting to do it for the good guys and, and get people to change their behavior. And then on the side of all of that is that I, when I was before I went to uh, college, I had to decide: did I want to study film and then do the kind of academic intellectual stuff that I enjoyed on the side, or the other way around? Did I want to go and study, I don't know, politics or economics, and then do film on the side? Mm-hmm. And I decided that it was more interesting to study film and to keep the intellectual stuff as a hobby and, and not try and do it as something useful. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just curiosity. You know, this more than anything else, it's not. 
It's just about wanting to understand how the world works. Um, and so then I did that and I sort of made a commitment to myself. You know what? I will make sure that I do some stuff that uses my brain. You know, uh, my running a production company definitely uses many parts of who I am, but the creativity and the people skills and things like that, none of it's using the, just the logical part, you know, it's, there's so many more things going on. And so I sort of used to do little projects and stuff. And I, I quite often, if I had a debate with a friend in the pub about film, they'd be like, Oh yeah, there are more comedies. And, and I'd say, I don't know, I don't think so or whatever. And we, I'd go, I was the one that would go home and try and find out not to win the argument, but because it's frustrating to have, people in in the film industry just chatting to each other without the information and if they knew they could do that far better for their audience for themselves for their projects and the 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 industry is not very good at sharing that information so mm -hmm. it was always a hobby and i just started putting it out on the blog because i felt that it was a good place to do it and why not share it you know my, I, there's two cool things about this one is discovering something and going oh my god look how cool that is the second half is just as interesting which is hey hey guys come look at this you know um because then people go off and use it in a way you never thought and then they come back and they're like oh that thing you showed me i used it like this and you're like oh that's really cool you know so sharing the information has been as essential as doing it for me all along um and uh, yeah, so then I started in the blog and then somebody told me that it was good to try and have some structure to it. So I decided to publish every Monday. I just, you know, it, one of those things where when you have loads of different things in your life that are all different shapes, it's very hard to, to work out what to do today. And so by having these self-imposed deadlines, mm -hmm. it really helped. And I just kept looking for stuff. And the more I look for something, the more I find something else to think of and things build on other things and you know, sometimes I'll, someone will tell me about a cool technique, like, um, I was it a couple of years ago, someone told me about this API where you could send it a picture of a human face and it would tell you all the emotions in it. And I'm like, oh, cool. I wonder <laughs> if it worked for movie posters. And I sent a few movie posters and it worked. And then I'm like, wow, I could send all movie posters. And so you, <laughs> you see, that, I mean, now you see, that's, that's where, this is where you are different than most human beings. <laughs> One or two, that's kind of cute, but then you go straight to all movie posters Why not? What, what are the steps I'm, I'm missing in the middle because the thing is <laughs> the hard things are you know conceiving of it and then building it but then to like it's like building a whole printers and then printing one magazine like what, like one copy no 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 do a print run for everyone um and so and then once you have all this data what's really fun is that you tend to get really clear patterns and stories and you say oh yeah I always knew that or I knew that as a film fan but now I've got the proof or actually everything the industry says about X is just wrong. It just doesn't work like that. And the people at the very top or the people who have been in it for a very long time, they know this, mm -hmm. but they let everyone else think the other thing because it makes it easier for them or whatever. And so it's really nice to come back and go, hey, no, guys, you, this is something that you can do to help the work you're doing, you know? Um, and I, I think this is awesome. Like, that's really a fun thing to do because I, I, people are going off and using it. Like, if someone's going to make a, a movie and they're going to make it like this but i know that 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 choice they've made is not going to be great for their success if i can nip in and help them and give them a little bit of advice they're still doing all the hard work but then their film will be you know much more successful or whatever it will be i feel like if you can do that you kind of gotta you, you don't it's not really a choice it's kind of i i've got a small part i can play along the journey and i if i don't then i'm being a bit lazy and not really playing my part to the community you know that's insane. Yeah. It, it, again, like we've said off air, it's like, that's just so not in my wheelhouse. I'm so impressed with that <laughs> mentality and how the mind, your mind works. 
And and then you were telling me like I'm marketing. I'm like, well, that's me. I could do that. <laughs> that's in my that's in my wheelhouse, well, without question. But it, your work is is doing an insane amount of good for uh, for a lot of filmmakers and a lot of people in the business. And your latest project, which I'm going to read the cover, which when, when it was appro- when I was approached by the to, to about this, I my mouth dropped. I could not <laughs> believe that someone did this. But then I saw your name on it and I was like, well, of course. And then it makes perfect, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Only a psychopath would do this. I'm like, oh, it's Stephen Follows. Okay, that's perfectly <laughs> makes perfect sense. Um, the, the, the new report is called Judging Screenplays by Their Coverage. You analyzed 12,000 plus unproduced feature film screenplays and the scores they received and revealed, and this and then this reveals what professional script readers think make a good screenplay. And that's what this entire report is about. And it gives you a real, like, this is a, this is an interesting report because it's about 12,000 unproduced feature films, not produced feature films. So please tell me how this came to be and, and how did you go about putting this together? And then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of the report. Yeah, that sounds great. I, um, I mean, there is, this is not the main reason I do it, but there is a real side, side pleasure in doing something that, it's like it's like a magician where they spend years training how to do this thing, and then they got all this equipment and a team, and then they're able to go, oh yeah, like this. And it was like, oh, it's magic. And 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 as any screenwriter will tell you, nothing is magic. It's just hard work. You know, like you watch Ocean's Eleven, and like, oh, how did they get out of that situation? And you're like, well, the screenwriter or writers worked on it for like a year and then made it look easy. So uh, yeah. So what happened here was I was talking over a year ago with the guys at Screencraft and. Um, they manage all sorts of competitions and things like that. And they are really good guys that are really interested in helping screenwriters. It's one of those businesses that's a proper business that's come out of wanting to support screenwriters. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can tell, you know, in the sense that um, I talk to lots of people and lots of people suggest things. And you can tell which people are just saying, hey, can we just get some value out of this or whatever. And then there are other people who really want to sort of say, yeah, yeah, but how does this help? writers and so we were chatting and both of us had seen years ago there was an infographic uh, that was still doing the rounds like it's a big one page infographic and it was from one particular script reader who had kept loads of notes of all the scripts they've ever read Mm -hmm. and they and there was interesting things like what country or what state the characters were from or whatever but then on the right hand side was this list that was about why they thought the scripts were bad or why they were held back. You know, it wasn't, didn't have a strong protagonist, didn't have a strong plot, and they'd ranked them based on how many times that came up. And uh, John at Screencraft and I were both independently saying to each other, oh, there's that thing I saw years ago that was really cool. And I was like, can we do that at scale? You know, can we, and we can't find the exact things like that, you know, like protagonist is a bit weak in the third act because that is nuance that the data would struggle to really understand, Mm -hmm. but there is loads of stuff we can do. And so we spent some time talking about, okay, but how do we do this? Like in in this modern world of privacy, how do we do do this without it being a problem? We don't want to be taking people's private work and doing all sorts of things with it. And, and so that was that held us back a little bit to figure out how we do this without causing any problems we don't want to be the next like facebook or whatever but at the same time i think we can help screenwriters and so in the end we worked out a kind of complicated but good system that anonymized all the data all the scores that their readers got but still allowed us to have a look on mass so it's not it wasn't a case of us sitting there reading every script and you know that kind of stuff it was more turning it into data um, and as I said, the, the scores, what they get from readers, uh, was not just the overall score, but also 
all sorts of things like catharsis, plot, structure, you know, voice, things like that. Taking all of those, uh, anonymizing them, but still being able to sort of link data points. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, great. So we got over that hurdle. And then it took longer than I thought it was going to on the data side from uh, my uh, point of view. Shocking. Just so much information. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, you know, and also it's one of those things where you start and you think, okay, I'll just do ABC. And then you're like doing that. You're like, oh, look, D exists. Oh, yeah, E exists. F, G. And then, you, you know, so it really was a, a discovery thing where as soon as we cracked one thing, we discovered two more things. And in the end, we had to go, okay, you know, there's some things we, we put to one side and said, you know what, I'm not going to do anything on this because we can do this in the future and it's just too much now. And, um, oh, I should say, well, I keep saying we. So, uh, I led the I led the process, and I, it was certainly something that John at Screencraft and I set up. But also, there was a, a, a two great people that really helped me: Josh Cockcroft and Leora Mitchell. And both of them really helped me with the coding and the thought process and the writing it up. And you know, it was a team effort. Um, so yeah, we, there was a few things we left on the table, but then we left. We ended up with this fifty-page report that looks. I mean, it looks at three different things. It, it, fundamentally, the main thing is that it looks at what. Do, script professional script readers think a good script looks like um and we can talk more about what that is in a bit so that's the main that's the main purpose of the report but then the next bit was about well what does the average screenplay look like you know like how what what's normal not even good or bad but like how many characters scenes pages dialogue locations and then finally there's little bits we could do about screenwriters again we don't know like individually their um who they are or how old they are and like that but there are some things we can figure out with gender and genre and which um bits of software they use as well because you know which program do you write with and stuff like that so that's the bits that we decided to lend in so you you may to be telling me you think it's long i think it's short <laughs> of course you do you're psychotic table. you're psychotic Stephen. <laughs> that's that, and that's, that's fine so kind. And, Thank you. No, but you're psychotic in a wonderful way, sir. In a wonderful, wonderful way. (laughs) I just, as you're talking, I just realized what who you are. You are you're moneyballing screenwriting. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny because that's come up a few times, and we thought about like, okay, do we lean into that or lean out that? And ultimately, I think the really important thing to remember with this is that we are judging what what script readers think a good script is. We're not saying what audiences do. We're not saying what will work, what won't, and we're also not. There's no formula for, I'm, I, you know, the more data I get into, the more I appreciate the value and, and importance of human creativity and ingenuity and hard work. So it's not like, oh, I can just generate a script now. So you're absolutely right. But of a very narrow thing, you know, this is the gatekeepers, you know, the, as you know, the people who get you in the room, you know, uh, that get you, place you in a competition or whatever or give you validation to show what you can do mm-hmm. that's what we're focusing on this really narrow gatekeeper role right exactly so i mean you it, the difference between moneyball is they were literally just looking at at stats so yeah. there was a different thing there there was no creativity in, involved but this exactly. is a, a moneyballing of script readers and what will get what what betters your chance of getting a screenplay through the gatekeeper which Absolutely. is a massive head start above everybody else. If you don't, if you know this information, you've just changed your odds of writing something or creating something with your creativity and with your skill and your craft to actually be able to break through the door uh, much faster and get more attention quicker, just based on this uh, on this uh, research. And as mm-hmm. I, as I'm skimming through the the um, the report. Uh, I, I just came across like what matters most to script readers. And mm-hmm. on the most important side 
it is characterization, plot, mm-hmm. style, the voice of the of the writer, and then the things that matter the least: theme, hook, originality, format. <laughs> and which is opposite of what a lot of people talk about. A lot of people talk about, oh, it has to be completely original. Oh, it has to have be perfect format. Um, you've got to have a good hook and the theme's got to be really great. Structure's down there as well, but they really care about characters. They care about plot and they care about style and the voice. So it's more of the, almost the, less of the, the, um, the technical and more of the creative is what they're looking for, at least from just looking at it a very yeah. quick glance. No, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the important things to, to sum this up with is that if you get the technical stuff wrong, you can fail, but you can't win without the other stuff. So it's almost like the yes. reason that you do the technical stuff is so that you don't get, you know, so that you don't get thrown out. It's the, the foundation. You're gonna, exactly. It's the foundation. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. But if you're going to excel, if you're really going to make something incredible, then your voice as a writer is the most important thing that people are after. And it's fascinating to see this in the data because I see this in other places as well when you look at what movies are successful and things like that. It's, you can't say that uh, this is always the case in every place, but being good or working hard come out very, very often as the, amongst the number one things. And here as a writer, it's not about tricking them with a clever line or like a good title or like it's formatted, you know, oh, beautifully. It's, or, or, you know, or that it's so different just for the sake of being different. What we can see here is that what it matters is, can you write something? Can you, can, do you have a voice? Do you have an authenticity? You know, the idea of a, writing a really good spec script in Hollywood to get yourself noticed, but they're not going to pick up your script. They're not going to make it. But the fact that you could write it with a certain voice mm-hmm. is what will open doors. And you see the same thing here. And because these are all spec scripts, you can see actually, yeah, this is what you should be doing. Don't worry too much about how uh, viable it actually is to be made tomorrow. You know, don't spend forever just focusing on the formatting. That's not to say it's not something, but fundamentally, who are you? What have you got to say? You know, how would you describe these events? Not what are these events? You know, and that's what these people want. And I love that because I, I think and I hope that's what writers want to do. They want to see the world think about it and, and express it and i find that really pleasing and reassuring that that's what the script readers are after too if you if you take a list of the top 20 screenwriters who have worked in hollywood uh, dead or alive but let's say alive i'm gonna say that all of them have a very unique voice mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you, the sorkins the shane blacks the kaufman's uh, you know, these kind of guys, Noel, Christopher Nolan, these guys have very specific styles uh, and have a, a very unique voice. Sure, there's always going to be technicians, always going to be craftsmen who could just get in there, knock out a script, be kind of, you know, straight down the middle. Uh, but the ones that stand out, the ones that really, really, that, that we know the name of the writers off the top, like I say, Sorkin, everybody should know who Sorkin is. Mm-hmm. Everyone should know who Kaufman is or, or Black. You know, these are these are screenwriters whose style is so significant, Tarantino, so significant that their last name is enough to to you know create that. Um, and I think people forget about the voice because they're always so caught up with trying to do something that's going to uh, impress or what's hot now or all this kind of stuff. And this, this obviously proves the one thing that I, I find interesting is we're going to talk about genre next is that a lot of things are, Oh, what's hot and what's not hot. 
there's certain things that just stay hot and certain things that just don't stay hot for a long time. And, and they stay consistent over time. Yeah, sure, they'll have little peaks and valleys of horror is really hot right now or this is really hot right now. But do you agree with that? Yeah, totally. And it, I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. What's interesting is that because we are film fans, you know, we're cinephiles, we go and see movies, and then we are film professionals, we sometimes overthink the film professional side of things and ignore the film fan side of these things, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes you go through this big data process, you write it all up, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of knew that. But that's okay because you've got validation and proof. But I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, you were talking about genre. We, all of those things that we we talked about, we correlated the success of the overall script based on their scores for all these things, which exactly as you said, says basically the shorthand of this is how important are each of these things. And like you said, formatting comes out as the least important across all genres. It's still, it's not, it is not irrelevant, but it's just not the most important thing. But what is the most important thing? changes depending on different genres so the ones you talked about like characterization and voice then they're number one for most of the genres Mm -hmm. but then if you think about a family film right so uh, the most single most important thing for a family film is catharsis yes which makes perfect sense as a film fan you know i'm not sure i would have sitting there and guessed it if i was before we did this work i would have written it like this but now i see it i'm like of course because you need a family film to be safe. You need it to be something you can put the kids in front of that you can watch. And you need the journey to end. And it needs to end satisfactorily, you know? Um, I'll give you an example. So uh, there's a, a viral video from like, I don't know, five, six years ago. And uh, what it is, is Toy Story 3 had just come out on, on DVD and Blu-ray. And for a Christmas prank, a family had taken it, two, two kids had taken it and cut out the bit, so the, cut out the very ending. So that what happens is the move that they're all going into the incinerator they're all about to die they say their goodbyes and then, and then the credits roll right <laughs> and they showed it to them their mom right and they had a hidden camera and she's watching it like a big fan of toy story scene one scene two she watches three she thinks they're all going to their death and then the credits roll and then she's like what I, really, what and she looks like she's devastated like not just sad but like her world has fallen apart and like it goes on it's very funny and then they own up and they tell her what they did but but what's so funny about that is it's saying the same thing as this data which is you don't expect a family film to leave you hanging it has to close up yeah but you think about a thriller or a good drama like a really good drama Mm -hmm. maybe the characters have a resolution maybe they don't but the themes never are resolved really because you these are questions about what it is to be a human being Mm -hmm. and so it makes sense that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily use this data to go and craft the perfect plot for a family film. But if you've written the first few drafts and you're like, okay, how can I improve this? You go, okay, well, is my catharsis, you know, how cathartic is this? How much does it actually close at the end of the journey? Um, and whereas if you're doing some other genres, it becomes far less important. Adventure films, it becomes less important in that sense. Right. Like if you look and at, so, oh, that's I'm sorry. That's so interesting. No, no. Like you look at, yeah, yeah, if you look, if you listen to, or you watch Free Willy. Yeah. Like if if Willie doesn't get free at the end of that movie, <laughs> they don't have four other movies. <laughs> no, exactly. You, know, if, you need closure, you know, and, and catharsis and closure are slightly different things, but they're in the same wheelhouse. Yeah. And it makes such sense for, you know? for, for a family film. But you don't need that for a horror movie. I mean, the, the, the killer could get away and then that's sequels. Uh, yeah, it's totally. just different by genre. But based on on the report, uh, the advice per genre, which I find a little fascinating, but it, once you start thinking about it, it makes perfect sense. The genres that are scored the highest, I'm just going to do the top three and the top and the top bottom three. The top uh, is thriller. 
then goes animated, it goes adventure, which makes perfect sense because those films kind of cross over tastes, meaning that mm. almost everybody can enjoy a good thriller. Almost anybody can enjoy a good adventure film. Almost anybody can enjoy a good animated film because you know what you're expecting with that. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got comedy is the worst reviewed, fantasy, and sci-fi. So then if you start thinking about it, I'm like, well, comedy, not everyone's going to get certain jokes. And then if you don't yeah, like totally. if you don't like fantasy, it's probably just it's a riskier it's a riskier genre. Same thing for sci-fi. If you're not a sci-fi or, or fantasy fan, not everyone's going to enjoy it. Everyone's going to generally enjoy a really good thriller or a really good adventure film, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Almost anybody could enjoy Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you don't have to be a fan of archaeology. Yeah, but yeah. you have to be a fan of fan of of Lord of the Rings to enjoy Lord of the Rings. I couldn't. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there there are other things as well when you, when you think about them. Like comedy is the only genre where you can really fail at. Like oh, you know, if you yes. if you've got a, a horror film and it's not very scary, it's still a horror film. It's just a bad one. Or a <laughs> everything is drama. Like us talking is drama. It's not very dramatic, but it's drama. But if we don't make jokes, it's not a comedy. And so the answer can be no. <laughs> and then for fantasy and sci-fi, my theory on this one, which is just my theory of the same data that you've got in front of you, but my theory is that. If if you get uh, some of the details wrong in a fantasy or a sci-fi when you're writing the script, it's confusing. And, and humans don't mind mystery. Mystery is intriguing, but confusion is, is, feels horrible. Yes. When something's confusing, it's genuinely painful in an emotional sense. Whereas a thriller, if it's confusing, it doesn't matter as much because it's about the unknown. Fantasy, like you want to know the world, you know? Um, I saw um, Fantastic Beasts uh, 2 not long ago. I won't spoil anything about Yeah, I haven't film. seen that one yet. Oh, yeah. um, J.K. Rowling's already yeah. spoiled it. It's fine. Um, I've never, uh, I've never uh, heard of her. Is she good? <laughs> <laughs> I think she's amazing. But in yes. this film, it's a bit confusing. But the, the, my main point with this is that every now and then there's a situation that the characters are in. And then it turns out there's a magic way of getting them out. Like literally magic. And that's fine. But it, it's a bit of um, it's a bit of a frustrating as an audience because you, you feel disempowered to be able to figure out what's going on. Because she can't explain the volume of stuff that she knows about that world and so when you get a fantasy or a sci-fi wrong you're not explaining enough for the audience and so the ones that are bad tend to be quite bad you know a, a not very good sci-fi not very good fantasy and not very good comedy actually feel pretty shitty whereas a not very good thriller still a thriller so uh, my guess is that this is about whether you can fail at a genre or leave people completely confused or whether you actually can just make them think it's average and fine but you know, who knows? We, we, we know one of the things we can't tell here is that we, there, there is no and we certainly don't have access to any objective measure of quality. So it could well be that over these 12,000 scripts that maybe the comedies were bad, you know, and, but, and maybe that or maybe the script readers were biased. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. Comedy, There's enough of them. It's just but, comedy is extremely difficult. It's, it's probably one of yeah. the most difficult things to write, to direct, to, to make a movie of because I still remember uh, Airplane. When that yeah. the te worst test screening ever in <laughs> Paramount's history, the worst test screening ever, and the reason why they they went back and analyzed why because it was obviously a classic and one of the biggest hits Paramount ever had yeah, at the yeah. time, uh, and I can still watch it now and piss myself because it's one of the best comedies ever. <laughs> um, but uh, don't get me started because all the lines are starting to come back in my in <laughs> my head, go, so I don't want to go down the airplane road, Fine. but. Uh, they they figured that people at that time in history did not feel comfortable enough to admit 
that they liked it. So mm-hmm. when they wrote it down on the cards, they just wrote down bad reviews because they didn't want to say, I really like this lowbrow slapstick stuff. And that was fascinating to me. You like, know, that's the same. It's the same with horror, though. Like horror yeah. has always been a genre where in the 80s and 90s, people denied it. They're like, they, I think um, Fangoria, uh, like a, a magazine in the UK aimed at like, like fantasy and horror. They used to have a column that was entitled something like, it's not a horror, but or like that. And it was people m- promoting movies that were like it's not a horror it's like a dark psychological thriller and people would basically use all of these words to say it's not a horror and then that generation that grew up on, on those horror films uh, actually grew up into positions of power and, and went no i like horror and horror kind of exploded and then people's became less ashamed of liking horror um but horror has the has the least connection when it comes to horror movies the least connection between what critics and audiences say they think about it and whether they make money or not you know if you want to make a lot of money with a drama and documentary they need to be good by both audience and critic standards with horror it's irrelevant you know the purge has made so much money no uh, officially no one likes it you know it's got terrible audience reviews terrible critics reviews and it does just fine and there are other horror films that are like oh this is a work of art and they just don't make very much money and it's not that they have to be bad it's that they're disconnected so you're right there's this everything we're looking at is a lens through a lens through a lens and if the lens is tell me what you think. Well, then suddenly I'm thinking, well, who are you? How do I want to be seen? You know, whereas yeah. when you've got things like these are um, anonymous uh, script reports in the sense that you, no one's going to know who wrote them. You can actually say what you think. You're not having to stand up there and defend it. You right. know, or if you're a critic, you're thinking, what do people think of me? What do they think? They, my name, my photo's next to this. You know, like, of course I don't like this schlocky horror. Of course I like the really important foreign film or whatever. But when you look at what people pay to see or what, what they rent or whatever, you see a different story. Yeah, when you when uh, Silence of the Lambs won the Oscar or was in, in nominated in a, that during that time, <clears throat> it is still the first and only horror movie to ever win the Oscar, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. at least. Um, because because they told everyone it wasn't a horror film. It was a thriller. That's how you got away with it. It was a, it was yeah, a yeah, psychological thriller. thriller. You never once heard anyone call it a horror film, ever. Mm-hmm. But in, but when you watch it, it it's an effing horror film. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. <laughs> Call it what you want. Terrifying. You play. Yeah, it is terrifying. <laughs> and by the way, do you know that Hannibal Lecter's on screen for like 12 minutes? Really? <laughs> in the entire movie, like 12 to 15 minutes. It, it, but... All you can remember is him in that movie. Yeah. It's fascinating. Now, one of the – and this is this is a, another bit of data that I just – everyone always asks about. <laughs> what is the key amount of pages? What's the number? What is the sweet spot for page count? Because oh. 
I mean, we've I all we've all seen the 200 page script <laughs> 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 written by a first timer saying this is so good that Hollywood's going to take notice, and professionals were going to go look at him and go, "Look, dude." <laughs> It's just not going to work out for you. You need to stop. Well, it's like that joke of a producer picking up a, a long script and going, oh, I don't like it. It feels expensive. It, 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 exactly. It does. It's, it's, it, it doesn't make financial sense. Uh, even George Lucas had to break up Star Wars into three movies because his first script was like 250 pages or something like that. But I found – so I'm looking at the numbers right now um, of of what – and it it's it's kind of where I was. A couple of surprises though. I've, I didn't – because normally I always thought it was like 90 to 95 was a good – a sweet spot. But it seems to be 95 to 99 – is a good sweet spot, but then it jumps right to 105 to 109 and 110 to 114. Yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't worry about the, the, the you know on any chart. There's going to be a little bumpiness, and yeah. you know, and so 95 to 99 seems to be ever you know marginally higher than 100 to 104. But I wouldn't worry about those kind of details because that is that's not you know significant in a data sense. But what is significant is on either end, you know, under about 85 pages. Oh yeah, done. Uh, over about 130, and it falls off. A cliff and what there is a pleasing bell curve around here and like we said 95 to 115 is about yeah. the highest but ultimately the biggest piece of news from this is as long as it's not too long or too short doesn't matter you're right it's, so it's, they're freeing. very they're very close you know? they're very close they're very close and, and it's certainly not enough like that you should go and add in a couple of pages and it'll make a big difference to your <laughs> right. score because right. it depends what's on those pages right <laughs> exactly and i think as short as you can be to get your you get your whole thing across but also once you start crossing below 90 pages it's not really it's less and less like a feature film you know <gasps> right and you've less than the edit and stuff. Um, and we, we found that in a few different things where I had exactly the same as you. When I started this, I was like, right, I got some stuff I want to test, you know, talking about how I started doing all of this data stuff in the first place. I'm thinking, right, I want to test whether there is a sweet spot for pages. And I also want to test if voiceover is a good or bad thing, because my theory has always been, well, the, the theory I was educated on really, you know, um, was that voiceover is a bad thing when it comes right. to writing. I was my next thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. Like it's, it's for novels, right? It's a literary format. It's a way where you say what the character is thinking internally, but that's not how movies work. Movies are show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, great, we'll be able to test that. We'll be able to see if voiceover does harm movies because the, the argument against voiceover is that's a literary thing. It's internal monologue. You should show this stuff. If you have to say the character thinks, you know, a voiceover, I was feeling sad at this point, then you're not doing a good job writing it. The counter argument is usually just Goodfellas. Where oh, no, I, I'll, throw, I'll throw one even better, Shawshank. Ex- oh, ex- oh, that's a great example. It's that, like the best great- movie. It's still in my top two movies ever. I yeah. mean, it's, it's like one of the greatest, and it's wall-to-wall voiceover and goodfellas is too and goodfellas is also an amazing film but shawshank really you know because it's considered arguably one of the best movies ever made at least by by by, by imdb at least by imdb ratings (laughs) yeah yeah and and by the way for every every group old young male female like this this isn't a movie that's being swamped like the matrix is being swamped by younger male people no 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 no, no. the shawshank is universal and let's bear remember it it's a three-hour brutal racist prison drama it's not like it didn't have money written on it and it's called the worst title ever the shawshank (laughs) redemption 
just I don't uh, understand two of those three words. Yeah, exactly. It's like um, <laughs> right, the I get, but the rest of them yeah. I really No, um it's 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 fascinating and I don't want to go on a tangent on Shawshank because I can talk for hours about Shawshank, but that movie is such an anomaly. And I always I've analyzed that movie a million times of why um why it is so why it's so loved and beloved. I always tell people, if you don't like Shawshank, you're dead inside. I'm sorry. I can't talk to you. You Something went wrong along the way. You, you're dead inside. I'm sorry. But- you know, when I give, I give talks from time to time, and when I use Shawshank as an example, I do say, how many of you have seen it? And there's always like, no, sometimes there'll be one person if there's a room of like 50 people. Mm-hmm. And everyone else turns to them. And, and the main question is not... <laughs> Is, 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 is like, how? How have you not seen this movie? Like, this is an essential movie. And what's so funny is that the next movie they made, The, the uh, Green Mile, I, another I, three-hour brutal racist prison I drama from Stephen King. I love it. But anyway, so my, uh, not, this is not a tangent, but my theory on Shawshank is that that movie is essentially – uh, it's got a fun plot in the sense that it's got um, fun, uh, fu- fun. Stuff. Yeah, fun is not a word. I would no, 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 no. Sorry, no, no. But what I'm saying is the the twist. You know, uh, oh, yeah, of we, we, we won't ruin it for anyone. But the the main reason that's that's a distraction. I don't think that's the reason it's a successful film. I think that's fun, but I think that's what it gives people in their front of their mind to be distracted. The reason it's so successful is for three hours it asks one basic question, which is, can these two be friends? And they're the most unfriendly people in the world. You know, one is a wrongly convicted, quiet accountant who's in an incredibly brutal place. The other guy is in prison. He's black in a place that's in, in a time that's incredibly racist. It's unfair. And throughout the whole movie, you're saying, are they friends? Are they friends? Are they friends? And the final, final out of focus shot says, Yes, they are. And then your heart explodes because you're like, oh, my God, they were friends. And that's what that movie does. It asks one question repeatedly for three hours and then gives you a satisfying answer. Now, I'm going to give you my theory because now we're <laughs> going to we're going to do I'm sorry, audience. This is going to happen. So just settle in for a second because we're going to we're going to do this. I agree with that. I think that is one of the multi layers of this film. I always found it to be, and I'm sorry, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen Shawshank Redemption, I'm going to talk a little bit about the ending. Um, so please fast forward. But I, I always saw it as an as a allegory of our existence, and I'm going to go Ooh, deep here, nice. as our existence as human beings, because I feel that many of us feel like Andy Dufresne, that life has put us in boxes that we do not uh, belong in that we've been wrongly accused of, whether that be our life circumstances, our our family life, our jobs, whatever it is, and then that that beating that he gets throughout the movie, and you know, getting the rapings and all the other things that happen to him, is life doing that to us on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, again and again and again, and it is a life sentence, just like him. It's a life sentence. So when he figures out a way to over not overpower but with his mind break free and that he has to go through you know three football fields worth of crap to get <laughs> out of that and when he's so finally exposed it's almost like he's being birthed again at the end yeah, when he yeah, like yeah. rips off his you know clothes and, and that he's been able to outsmart the thing that put him there it is the ultimate cathartic feeling for us like oh my god 
What if I could do that to my boss? What if I could do that to a family member that, that, that's been pounding me all these years emotionally, verbally, or whatever, or you know, whatever situation in life has been doing that to you? And that is why I feel that it is, it cuts through every genre, age, male, female, it doesn't matter. I remember watching that movie out, it was in 94 it was released. And that year, I'll never forget it. I was I was fresh out of high school. And my high school, you know, friends at the time who, you know, we all thought Jean-Claude Van Damme was the greatest actor of all time. <laughs> um, we all said, holy cow, was that a great movie? It cut through even maturity level. And only after you get older do you realize a lot of other levels of it. But even at that basic level, it cut through. That's my well, interpretation. That is so, I love that. That is such a good point. And you know, the interesting thing about Red is that the, the Morgan Freeman character is that I can understand everybody identifying with Andy Dufresne, mm -hmm. but nobody is really identifying with Red. And I, I read something a while ago that was talking about the TV show Entourage. Yeah. And it said the reason that TV Entourage works is not because men have a fantasy about being Vince. That it's not that they want to fuck movie stars and they want to be rich. It's that they want to be best friends with Vince. So they get to fuck movie stars and, and have all this stuff. Like they don't want the responsibility or the pressure or the expectation of being Vince. They want to be turtle. They want to be E, you know? And they want to be a yeah, drama. Men, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what men want. They want that kind of um, access. Like, access, but without the responsibility. And so everybody wants to have a friend like Red, but nobody actually wants to be Red. And because here's a guy that can get you everything, but you can still be quiet, Andy. You know what? I buy that. That's a. I like your theory on that one. We. Um, I think uh, I, I like your theory as well. I think the. I think they're both valid, and they both work in the same way. It's just I think that that movie has so many layers and levels of things that are going on. That it just it is it is as perfect of a film as I've ever seen, uh, honestly. Absolutely, you know? and it proves to me that you like. I'm joking about it being a brutal, you know, prison drama, but it is. And it what is. I like about that is that it teaches you that there's no story that can't, you know, that's impossible for it to be something that can connect with people. And if you can have that movie that's that extreme, connecting with so many people in such an extreme way, and anything's possible. You no, know, it's yeah, not that absolutely. everything is possible, but anything. Yeah. No, if well, the anyway, story is good, well, the if reason, the story is good, it will cut through all of this. If the story yes, is exactly well executed and directed in the act, I mean, it's just amazing. But back to voiceover. <laughs> Sorry, voiceover, guys. Yeah, sorry. sorry, we went on a short shake. <laughs> you can come back now. We finished chatting. Uh, yeah, no. So, so anyway, so one of the first theories I had, I really wanted to test when I when we started on this data was voiceover and yes. and is it correlate with bad scripts? And I, and I, I can tell you now that the answer is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. <laughs> if you have a huge amount, then obviously it's a problem, but a huge amount of anything, you know, there's a, I can show you that a huge amount of exclamation marks don't help. You know, a huge amount of anything doesn't help, but fundamentally it doesn't matter. And, and so I've updated my understanding of this. And I now think that the, I still believe that there is a, a, a loose correlation between voiceover and bad movies but now i'm putting the blame on editors and producers who are doing hack jobs to quote unquote save a movie or to make it shorter or to you know whatever um you know like blade runner oh you were you were i was about to just cough out blade runner i mean yeah exactly <laughs> and so that's my theory is now now is that, that actually writing voiceover is fine it's how you use it it doesn't it's not a good thing it's not a bad thing it's a tool you know and and you as an artist need to paint with that and what you paint matters um but it's not a bad thing it's not something to uh, one of the things I hope I can do with this project is if you are a writer who is currently being told that to cut voiceover you believe is important and you're being told because it's a fact that voiceover is bad, I can tell you for a fact it's not. It's what you do with it. 
Yeah, I know Robert McKee yells at people for using voiceover, um, but like everything, it's a tool. It can be used right or not. Also, he might not be... He might not be wrong as well that it's correlated with bad movies, but that's different to bad screenplays. You know, it's really important that we understand that because movies go through so many processes with so many people between the screenplay and the big, and the big screen. And that, that's why this data stuff is so interesting. We need to chop at all of these different stages down and analyze them separately so that we're not confusing one thing and doing something else. You know, we're not just thinking, oh, I saw a bad movie with voiceover, therefore I'll never write it. No, no, no. Don't do what that movie did that made it bad. It's not you know, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Now, I love the next part I want to talk about. And, and, and for everyone listening in a car with a child, this is the part where you might want to skip or pause and listen to it privately. We're going to talk about swearing <laughs> in, in, in scripts. And that, you see, I, I just love that there was somebody who counted how, <laughs> how many shits there were in 12,000 scripts. How many fucks there were in 12,000 scripts and other words. And I just love that you are that person. Uh, Stephen, I, I, I did. <laughs> well, can I just state for the record, I did not read every script. Of course not. Going, There's one. No, um, no, obviously one. not. You would still obviously. be doing it. But <laughs> that there was a there, that that was a that was one of the data points that we needed to discover. That well, was it. Eighty. I can tell you that I built a machine to, to, to you know a little uh, algorithm to discuss these, which means I am one of the few people who can say I have built a fuck machine. No. I've built a shit machine and I've built a cunt machine. <laughs> no, but like, so the word that's most used is shit. Sort swear word, yeah. and followed quickly by fuck, and then yes. um, the c word. I I never like saying the c word, but the c word drops down to like five less than ten percent of all scripts had this yeah. word because it's a harsh word. It's harsher than shit or fuck, but um, it's fascinating um, <laughs> how like and then also in in genre, which genre yeah. uses the most swear words, comedy, action, and horror. And and the thing is, I think they're all doing different things in the sense that action, it's about exclamations of, of like surprise. I think horror, it's about, um, you know, pain and, and frustration, whereas comedy, it's, it's, they're using it in a different way. And in another part of the report, we found that there's a strong correlation between uh, sexual words, words to do with sex that are in comedy. So if you look at most words to do do with whether it's you know genitalia or different sex or whatever sexual acts they're much more likely to be found in comedies so people because they don't tend to thrillers don't tend to be fundamentally about sex whereas comedies can be or are more likely to be so it's it's interesting they've all got different reasons for being you know on that top part of the script um, top part of the chart um but but i'm looking at the report right now steven and i i I, I i'm giggling because there's a graph (laughs) and 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 a graphic with like Fuck, sixty three point three percent. Fuck, cunt, nine percent. And like, and it's like throwing, and I'm like, oh my god, this is brilliant. Do you know what? That is a Venn diagram with three circles showing the overlap of yes, people who use there's you know, overlap, one word and stuff. Yes. This caused me a this the graph caused me the biggest problem of all of the report. And as I said, as we said before, it's a lot of. And this one was a problem because every time I sent notes to my graphic designer, it went to his spam folder because at one point, <laughs> over half of all the words in the email were the three worst words in the English language. Well, sure. And so um, this was a problem for moderation more than anything else. And I, and I was trying to you know, point out that this is academic it's not like we're children, you know, but, um, but what was interesting is that there is a correlation earlier in the report. We, we looked at the correlation between the amount amount of swearing and the scores it got and we found that actually uh across all the films as they got swearier they got 
higher and higher scores, not insignificantly, apart from the most the top 20% uh, of, of, you know, in the, the 20% who have got the most swearingness in it, they're the ones, they didn't perform that well. But the ones that had some swearing or what we call as a lot of swearing, so this is the sort of uh, third and uh, fourth, you know, fifth of, of, of all the scripts, um, they actually scored the highest. And when we try to look into why this was, obviously family but across all the scripts it was like this and when we, when we sort of drill down to try and work out why we discovered a pattern where the swearier the script was the higher the score was for voice which is one of the things that we can measure like we were talking about before with catharsis and things like that so what's happening is that a lot of times script readers are correlating the use of swearing with how good the writer's voice is mm-hmm. or, or you know good writers swear a lot we can't we don't know the difference between the two they would both show up the same um but this is a a, a really good example of this is true and this is very useful but at the same time just putting more swear words in there is misreading the results it just says the kinds of people who have the strong strongest writing voice are more likely to swear than the ones that don't well i mean it, it is actually quite fascinating but again you know, given Tarantino or Shane Black the power of cursing, they use it as an art form. It, it's it's a paintbrush for them. Yeah. They don't lean on it uh, as a crutch, where a lot of screenwriters I find uh, in scripts that I've read lean on it as a crutch, as like, I have nothing cool to say here, so I'm just going to say the F word, you know, as opposed to mm-hmm. something that really makes sense. You know, like, it's an art, like when Tarantino curses, it's an art form. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and you and you say that his writing voice is coming out of that. You're absolutely right. Um, so yeah, kind of kind of interesting. I'm not sure. This is, there's a few things in here where I, I don't really want people to take this as literal advice to do tomorrow. It's more as a route to understand how things work. But mm-hmm. yeah, if suddenly the you know spec script world becomes a lot swearier, then I, it's, it's, your fault, it's your fault. Yeah. It's your fault. It's your it's your fault. And then age, age of characters. I found um, not surprising, but interesting. Where basically thirties is the sweet spot. That's the well. That's well, the it's not so much. The, it's, it, you're right. It, that's the most common. And so yeah. the, we don't have individual data on the actual screenwriters. So I can't tell you like whether people who are over sixty write characters that are over sixty. I'd love to, but I think that's a bit like we'd have. That's you know people that's have a lot. to give us that data, and it's just a bit too much private data. But what we do know is across all our writers the average age is about 31 32 and um so unsurprisingly the most common age for characters is in their 30s um but what you find is if you look at the age of the characters Mm -hmm. and then you look at how often they speak you find that as characters get older they speak less which is just typical of like someone in their early 30s or late 30s uh, sorry late 20s thinking oh the older they get yeah the less relevant they are the less you know they drive the story um which i thought was kind of fun uh and also the idea that, you know, there are things in here that I think one of the things a good writer will always be thinking about is how will this show on screen? How will people see this? So, for example, the most common uh, final digit in an age was uh, of characters was zero. So the characters were 20, 30, 40, 50. That makes sense, right? But then the next most common was five, 25, 35, 45. But after that, it was eight. So 28, 38, you know, 48. And I think that's because the writers think that when you write somebody's 28, you're saying something about their character, you know, mm-hmm. they are older, but maybe they've got regrets. They've got time to try and achieve things. You know, people, midlife crisis, you know, maybe hits people around 38 or whatever. And so there's information that the writers are trying to convey that is probably never going to be shown on screen. 
You know, if the characters are having a midlife crisis, then you have to show them saying it, living it, driving a new car, whatever it is. But just saying their age won't do it. So it's kind of interesting about as a, that one of those things as a writer is, are you conveying that information in a way that will make it through to the big screen and into the minds of your audience? Well, I mean, we've we've talked a lot about this report. And believe it or not, everyone, there is a lot more information in this report <laughs> than what we've discussed. We haven't given away all the goodies uh, and, and are you giving this away? Are you doing it a pay as you can? What is going on with this? No, we're giving it away actually. And, and the last report I did a horror report, I did it as a pay what you want because it cost. it took a lot of time to put together the horror report. And I thought uh, if I can make a sustaining business out of um, people paying for these reports that I can then put the money into the next report, that would be great. Um, and so it was a minimum of a dollar and, and anything else more you wanted. This time around, we're doing it entirely for free because we figured that um, what we really want to do here, Screencraft and I got together to help screenwriters. Mm -hmm. You know, They've given up loads of their time and they've given me access in various ways to their data. Um, but it's fundamentally something that we really want, are doing, not as a commercial thing. And they're not paying me um, you know, what it is. It's just to help people. And it might make it a little harder for the people who really could get some. So it's going to be a free download. By the time you listen, it's already free. If you go to stephenfollows.com, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F-O-L-L-O-W-S, uh, you'll be able to find it and download the whole thing as a PDF for free. Um, and I do want to say a, a big thank you to the people who bought the horror report in the past, whether you paid a dollar, whether you paid $20, whether you paid $50. Um, thank you, because some of the things we had to do for this report, we had to pay for services or like the graphic designer or, you know, little costs, but they, they're costs. And the money that people paid and donated for the horror report went into this one. So um, the fact this is free is thanks to the people who chose to give anything last time, but also especially the people who chose to give more than the minimum. Um, Love that. You know, the community can give what they can. Everyone gives what they want to give and what they think it will help them. And yet together we can all move ourselves forward. Then that's a, that's a happy outcome. And we are going to put links to, uh, to the report and to all of Stephen's insane work in the show notes uh, as well. And then we're also going to talk, uh, I might have you back for the horror report, honestly. Uh, yeah, 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 let's do it. I might have you back for the horror report because the, the horror report, let's just uh, just try, let's tease everybody uh, listening, it went through how many films? Um, all of them. So basically <laughs> every horror film ever created, uh, you actually- I think it was ever released- ever released in U.S. cinemas ever. So I think it's about 10,000 films. So it's it's not like if you made a feature with your mates and no one saw it. It's ones that made it to some form of distribution uh, at some point throughout the last 100 years. Uh, yeah. Uh, seems... I just I spent a year and a half looking at them in every possible way. And it, it was really enjoyable. You know, funny enough, I'm not actually much of a horror fan. And I don't really watch horror films. It's not what I want as a fan. But as, a, as someone who wants to understand the industry, it was really exciting because uh, – as I said, there's, there's the, the lowest correlation between the quality of the film and the success, which immediately suggests the question, well, what does matter? And also because it's the most accessible um, genre for low-budget filmmakers. And, and it can, in theory, you could be the next Paranormal Activity or next Blair Witch, whereas you're not going to be the next Jurassic Park. So it's an accessible genre that's fun to make that actually has – you can affect it more than just get good. And so um, – for me, that was like, okay, I can do something here. I can help people who want to make horror films by helping them show what kind of things. But you're right. It's like 
200 pages. It took a year and a half. Um, it's gonna. It's a, a whole new podcast, I think. We are going to – I'm going to have you back, Stephen. We're going to talk about the Howard Report because I think that's going to be extremely beneficial to uh, to the tribe. And uh, I just want to read it too because it's it sounds fascinating. You know. So, Stephen, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today or a filmmaker? I'd say it's – there's two things which sound like they're the opposite, but they're not. One is is about you, which is, you know, just get good, you know, and then get good really, really slowly. And it's really, really hard. You just keep working at it and you keep writing and writing. And everyone says, right, right, right. And actually, that is the right thing to do. You just keep producing the work. And so that's a sort of inward note. But then this second thing is you've got to get out there and you've got to meet people, not because you're going to meet the next Harvey Weinstein or studio boss in a lift. God, that, that has a completely different meaning nowadays. It right, does, it does. That. Oh, yeah, scratch that, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, uh, scratch that. You're not because you're going to meet the next studio boss in a lift, pitch them, and then and then she's going to hire you. That might happen, but that's not the reason you go out and meet people. It's because you meet people who are in the same position as you, and they're in the same part of the journey. And, and, and you know, everyone says networking. Networking is, I tell you what, it's, it's, people, it's people standing in the corner of an industry event, clinging onto their drink, hating it, Standing next to somebody else. Hey, I'm Stephen. I hate this. And someone else going, Hey, I'm Alex. I hate this too. Oh, cool. You know, and then talking. That's what networking is. Uh, and the more you can do that, the more you'll meet people who are in the same position as you, but they're a producer, they're a director, or a writer, whatever you need. Someone who's been there before who can help you, or there's someone who can work for you or work. You know, you can bring them on your team. And you just you keep at it. You keep turning up. And you look at the people who are successful. They are very talented, but they've also turned up a huge amount and the most of the the people that come in at the same time as you the first year you're in film loads of people coming in the same year most of those people are lazy mm-hmm. most of them are flaky most of them have got other things to do and that's great like good luck to them it's great that they're leaving the industry to do other things that make them happy and if they haven't got the stamina for it it's better they find out now but the more years you keep turning up keep producing work keep showing it to people keep talking to people you just get good by turning up because people see you they give you advice you see patterns and then very quickly you realize that the person that you met at that party five years ago they're now actually got a film that did well and they're looking for another script and they know you and suddenly it seems a bit easier so after like five, six, seven years, maybe 10 years, depending on where you are and what you're doing, suddenly things almost become easier out of nowhere. But what's really happened is it took you 10 years without any feedback of success to, to build those roots. And and the last thing I'd say is that when I was a kid, I, I, I'm British and I, I grew up in Britain. And when I'm watching all of these comedies in the 90s, everybody seemed to be on these comedy TV shows. Everybody seemed to be in each other's shows. And I always used to think, how do I break into that circle? How do I break into the circle? <laughs> and now as an adult and as someone who understands the industry, I realize you don't break into their circle. You make your own circle. Yes. And do it when nobody else is anybody else. And everybody else is unemployed, has never done anything, isn't good yet. And you connect, you work together, and then suddenly one day you wake up and you realize you're in a circle and you're in your own club. And no one can break in, really. Like, it's not that you're pushing them away. It's just that given the first choice, why would you not work with these people that you've worked with for 10 years who also were there for you when there was no money and no fame and they still showed up? Of course you're going to hire them first, which means there's no space for anyone to break in. But there should be people making their own circle in another room somewhere. And in the future, they'll be the people that are in the same position you are now. And I think that's really important to realize is that you 
all of the work is done before the light gets shine on you, you know, gets shone on you. And you have to work hard when no one's watching because eventually that does pay off. It just isn't sexy. It isn't fun. It isn't easy. It doesn't pay. And it's, um, it's not the sexy kind of montage you see in a movie of people just writing and then being angry and then suddenly being happy and then they've got it. And then it's the next morning. It's, it's far less sexy than that. Um, that's some great, great advice. Uh, and I've, I've answered, I've asked that question, Hundreds of times on this show. That was that's first time that's ever been answered that way. So it's a really great piece of advice. Oh, thank you. Now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? Uh, interesting. I read a lot, and I, I read a lot of nonfiction to try and understand different people's worlds. And I'd say uh, I, it's hard to say the one, but I'd say one that is incredibly powerful that really ticked a lot of boxes was Creativity Inc. Oh, what a great book! Oh. Such a great book, and oh. it's so nice to have an entertaining story with a with a person's life story, but also it's a business book and it's a book about how to be a creative uh, a creative person. Yes, but, but the other thing, just I'm going to cheat and give you a second book because sure. it's entirely different. There's a book called The Golden Theme, and it's a short book, and it's by a story theorist called Brian McDonald, and he also wrote Invisible Ink and a few others. He is a genius and is totally I wouldn't say underappreciated because lots of people know how good he is, but he's I don't understand why he's not, you know, bigger than McKee or, you know, talking more. And so I just, his stuff is amazing. And the golden theme is a fairly short little book. It's not, um, it's not a whole book. Like invisible ink is a whole book about screenwriting. The golden theme is about, um, one idea that he's seen throughout many different, uh, the history of stories and art and things like that, that there is one theme that seems to be, uh, seems to come up a lot in the work that's really successful. And it's this idea that we're all the same. And he talks about it and he doesn't he doesn't even make it a long book. He doesn't need to. He, he makes it a, gives some examples, talks about it and says that when that comes up, it tends to be really powerful. And when as soon as you, re, you read this, you're like, yeah, I can see it. And you and you walk around the world going, oh, my God, it's there. Oh, my God, it's there. And then you realize you can put it into your work. And so, uh, yeah, anything written by Brian McDonald, but particularly Golden Theme, it was out of print for a while, but I think it's come back into print. Um, and it if is. anyone if it's brilliant, well, then get it, read it. It's, it'll take you an hour to read it and it will transform your writing, I think. Yeah, it's actually, I'm, I'm on Amazon right now as we speak. So <laughs> it's, being put in my, it's, it's being put in my cart, sir. Um, yeah. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Well, obviously, the only honest answer is I don't know yet, but I, I won't give you that one. Um, I think... I tell you, okay, so I wouldn't say it, it took me a long time to get to the same answer everyone always told me. So I used to read lots of books about uh, internet startups and things like that because I was because I have always thought there's a strong correlation between uh, running a production company or being an independent producer or direct, director and having a startup. It's a very similar model. It's just that you don't have the bit where you turn it into a multi-trillion pound uh, enterprise and you get to be floating on the stock market. But the first few bits are very similar. And um, they all say things like, you talk to serial investors in Silicon Valley and they always say, we're investing in the people, not the product. And when there's one investor, when one creator, we're less uh, keen to invest. But when there's a team of two or three people, then it really matters. You know, that's, you know, a team of two or three great people who work together, that's the most investable combination. And so you hear that but you think well yeah but how can i find my kind of partnerships or whatever and so you kind of forget it and but then 
when I look back on the things that have really mattered, it is partnerships. And, and I've ended up working with lots of different people. And some people I've worked with once, and that's been fine. Um, other times I've wanted to work with people again and again. And for a, it's a small number of people who I have ongoing work with, whether it's in a limited company, like an actual commercial business, or whether it's someone I just have got a shared lexicon with. And looking at the people that really I work with and have ongoing relationships with, I can see how they bring the best out in me. I bring the best out in them. They catch the worst of me and I catch the worst of them. And and as we were, Alex and I were talking about beforehand, it's about sometimes there are things that I hate that I think it's just the worst thing in the world. And for someone else, it's the best thing they could possibly do. And like we, you know, you and I are talking about you loving promotion and marketing and me, I can't stand it, can't do it. And yet with the film data stuff, this stuff is, is not a sweat for me. It's hard work, but it's not impossible. Whereas for other people, it could be hard to imagine what it is. And if you find someone who you truly understand, you share a worldview, you share a view of how the world should be, but your interests and desires are fundamentally opposed. That's a really good model. So I'd say, don't try and find people who want to do what you're doing. Find people who believe what you believe and then do a little project with them. And if that works, do another one, do another one. And you don't have to, you know, meet somebody and propose to them. You can just keep working with them and then you'll find the people who keep turning up. And that is the most wonderful supportive thing where you have someone who gets you, who will work with you, catch the worst of you, like unhin- you know, unclip you so you can run to the best of you. And it's just immense fun. So yeah, be open to that and try and find those people as hard as that might sound. And what are three of your favorite films of all time? Oh, Jesus. Um, I think uh, Shawshank Redemption, we talked about that. Obviously. Um, you know, I wish I, I wish I had the bulls to say, you know, Jurassic Park, The Fallen Kingdom and The Fallen Kingdom 2, whatever it's called. I don't. Um, I think Inside Out is an amazing movie oh, about uh, just what it is to be human. And I still, I've watched that movie so many times, I still don't know how they did and I just in, in a story basis I just don't understand uh, what that is and I also think um, uh, I think uh, what was that movie called I can't even remember the name now um, it, I think it won the Oscar and it, it's about um, oh God, I've got a complete mind blank it's an Austrian film uh, about uh, the secret police in the 80s and uh, hold on my wife's in the room what's it called Lives. lives of others that's that's why i got married see my wife catches, <laughs> same here sir some, same you remember, here, sir. remember what i said about finding a partner who understands the shares your worldview but has different skills yes she, she can remember like you know names and stuff um the lives of others and like again another movie where you watch it and you're just like how what what that's amazing how did you do how did you do that um and yet it's so clear like it's just great work on every level um yeah they're the movies that seem to really move me and uh, where can people find you and your amazing work, sir? So all my work's at stephenfollows.com. Um, occasionally I do, I don't tend to do work published in other places, just time more than anything else. But uh, some of the work I've done with Bruce Nash, who runs The Numbers, uh, is on the AFM website. I think there's copies of it on my site as well. Um, and I, I would actually, I'm going to use this opportunity. If you've spent the last hour, hour and a half, maybe 10 minutes if Alex has been editing, <laughs> uh, listening to, to me and to Alex, I, and you're already on listening to his podcast. I know you've got one or two amazing questions for me to research. I know that there's some stuff Uh-oh. that you're like, is that always the case? When does that work? What's this? I don't care how stupid it sounds, how everyone tells you, no one knows. Maybe you, maybe it is a stupid question. Maybe no one can know, but I, I would love to have any question you can send me to research because the best stuff I've ever looked at is when people have said, you know what, I 
you're probably not meant to do this or you know everyone always says this and it suggests something i never thought of i go away and look at it and come back and it's really pleasing because i can actually help and uh i you know uh, this is me i'm not gonna i'm not gonna reply with one idiot question go away you know even the the questions which sound the most kind of strange or straightforward are speaking to a wider truth. So um, go to my site, go on the contact page, so stephenfollows.com, go to the contact page, send me, uh, fill in the form, it comes straight to me, it goes to my inbox. Uh, I will happily respond to everything, as in if I have the answer, I'll send it to you the link. If I think it's impossible, I'll say so, but probably I'll say that's a great question, I'll put it on my list, and then one day when I have the data or the time, I'll look at it and it'll become an article. Not only will you get closure, but also so many other people have shared I guarantee you share your question and it would be really nice to, to be able to help. So if you guys can help me go on my site, send me questions, ideas, things I should research in the film industry. Uh, and uh, I'd really appreciate that. Oh, well, uh, beware what you wish for, sir. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say at that, for that right now. Be careful what you wish for. You might get Tell you what, put a message out there that said, Alex sent me. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm from, I'm part of the tribe. I'm part of IFH this, um, tribe. Yeah. Just, yeah, I've, put that. I, I've done this before and I've warned people not to do something, stuff like this <laughs> because they get inundated, um, with emails and, and conference. So I'm curious to see what will happen, but uh, of course, thank you so much for being so generous. Uh, not only with your time today, but your constant work in helping filmmakers and screenwriters and people in the business try to succeed. So I truly, from the bottom of my heart, I truly appreciate all the hard work you do, and you do an immense amount of hard work, uh, you know, almost selfless in many ways to uh, to help the industry. So thank you again uh, for that and for being on the show, sir. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the time, and, and, and I'm not going to, I'm too British to start talking about all the great work you do, but likewise to you. But also thanks for, for having the time to chat about these things. This is how we get the word out there. This is how we realize we are all the same. And we all have the same challenges. So if I can be part of this, I feel honored. So thanks again. I do want to thank Stephen for coming on the show and sharing his ridiculous information, (laughs) amazing information about his new report. And if you want to get links to read that report and other stuff that Stephen's doing, please head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash three, two, four. I'll also have links to his amazing crowdfunding for filmmakers course on Udemy. So definitely check that out. And if you haven't already, please head over to filmmakingpodcast.com and leave the show a good review on iTunes. It really, really helps us out a lot. And if you like what we're doing at Any Film Hustle and you're a fan of what I do, please share this with every filmmaker, every friend, every associate in the business you can spread this information far and wide. I want this info to get out to as many filmmakers, screenwriters out there as humanly possible. Thanks again for listening, guys. And as always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. 
Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 